Are you ready? Okay, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And I wanted to ask you this question. And again, so much of our instruction coming out of these texts are focused on practical theology, but there's some very sound theology underneath it that you might want to wrestle with a little bit. So we talked about assurance and we talked about God's character and the triune nature of God. Any questions that come out of that, we'd love to be able to wrestle with those. But the question that I wanted to ask you as we start this next session is, are you a joyful person? A joyful person. I didn't say happy. I said joyful. All right? Joyful. Uh, What's interesting is my wife and I are different. Have you noticed that between husbands and wives? You're different. Not just male and female, but different. So I am generally a very happy person and a happy person in the morning. I'm a happy person. I get up and now at my age, there's a few groans, you know, sometimes the first thing out of my mouth is, uh, but then after that, I'm like, all right, new mercies, new day, let's go, uh-huh. you know, and I'm, I'm ready to go. My wife is not that way. And many of you in the room are probably not that way as well. Uh, it takes a while for her brain to actually start functioning and it usually needs the assistance of coffee. Are you with me on this? And then there's two or three brain cells that might come on that she'd go, oh, I have a husband. You know, it's just kind of moving into a category where I'm zipping and planning the day and ready to go. She's not quite functioning correct. You know, when I get up in the morning, it literally is this. It's good morning, Lord. And when my wife gets up, it's good Lord, it's morning. Okay? It's totally different thing. It's true. So, if you are or are not a, you know, morning person, you are, if you are a Christian, a person of joy. You are. And that's exactly what Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, encourages you. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 in this particular session. And I think you're going to be blown away. Maybe not by joy, maybe not by rejoicing, but you're going to be blown away by this incredible opportunity that we have to blow the world away with how we respond in situations. And that's verse five. It really is a remarkable statement. And I think one of the greatest tools that we can hand you from the text that could actually alter the way that you react to situations that you find yourself in in the world. So let's take a look at Joy though. He says this, after talking about these women and uh, who they need to be resolved in their relational tension, He says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, genuine joy is based on knowing God. And Christian joy is not affected by anything in this life because joy is rooted in the character of an unchanging, joyful God. In fact, Timothy calls God the blessed God. You know what blessed means, correct? Blessed means what in our culture? Happy. It is. It's a ha- Aren't you glad that we worship a happy God? Wouldn't it be horrific to be in all eternity with an unhappy God? Right? So we're blessed by that. He is also a joyful God and an unchanging God. James chapter 1, verse 17 makes that very clear. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from where? Above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. God is a God of joy. God never changes. Therefore, he's always a God of joy. What is joy? Let me give you five definitions. Five definitions of joy. One, any internal delight in God and a fullness from God in the heart of Christian. These are all from commentators and theologians from the current and past. Number two, joy is a deep sense of peace, gratitude, and love in the heart because of who God is. Number three, joy is the unshakable internal smile of the born-again heart. Number four, joy is an inner quality of life that depends on a right relationship with God. And number five, joy is knowing everything is certain with Christ and eternity. 
Now, my study on joy has led me to three phrases describing joy, and I kind of want you to write these down because I think they'll be helpful to you to really get a handle on this, this concept and this reality of joy. And they're real simple. One is divine delight. Divine delight. Joy is a delight in life, which runs deeper than pain or pleasure or circumstances. Joy is a delight in God. It's a delight in his salvation, his character, and his purposeful providence. Joy, all right? Divine delight. Secondly, it is internal fullness. Internal fullness. When you're filled with the Spirit, he produces the fruit of joy. Love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, jealous, faithfulness. I mean, it's the fruit of the Spirit, joy. Internally, through God's Spirit, there will be joy in your heart regardless of circumstances. An internal fullness. Divine delight. Number three, Christ confidence. Christ confidence. Joy comes from the confidence you have being in Christ, in Christ, his word, his control over all. Joy is crucial to your life. David even prays, restore the joy of my salvation. Joy is deep. It's abiding. It's full. It's delighting confidence in Christ. No matter what. Genuine salvation results in internal joy. It does. No matter what, authentic sanctification in the process of being sanctified results in joy. And what's sweet to think about is ultimate glorification will result in permanent, perfect, everlasting joy. Forever. Without joy, you will be a nominal Christian at best and a defeated Christian at worst. So Philippians chapter 4 tells us to stand firm in this life, to grow into a godly man or woman, you are to work at manifesting genuine joy, to rejoice, to stand firm, you will express joy. You will express joy. And God wants you to express joy. That's what rejoicing is. And so in this particular verse, verse 4, we're looking at first, we're talking about this concept of joy as a part of standing firm. This single verse gives us three truths the pattern of joy, the place of joy, the priority of joy. The, the pattern of rejoicing, the place of rejoicing, and the priority of rejoicing. Now it says, rejoice in the Lord always, or always, and again I will say rejoice. Now how is joy distinguished from rejoicing? How are they different? Well, rejoicing is an expression of joy. If joy is the internal delight in God and fullness from God in the heart of a Christian, then rejoicing is the outward expression of the inward joy. So he's saying to you, I want you to be expressing the inward joy outwardly. Rejoice. Rejoicing. Rejoicing is lettering the internal, born-again, spirit-empowered heart of joy shine. Okay? So let joy show. Paul says to stand firm, let joy show. So, why should it show? Well, because you are born again. You've been saved. You've been rescued. You've been made a child of God. You have Christ. Christ has you. You're eternally secure. You get to be eternally with Him forever. You've been rescued. You've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. Can we name the 66 things that happens to you the moment you get saved? All that happened to you, and that should result in rejoicing. Listen, on your worst day, your worst day, you can be rejoicing, right? Because any day you're not in hell is a pretty good day. Would you agree with that? It's a pretty good day. And we forget what God has done for us. So God's salvation. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 1 for a minute. Hold your place, Philippians chapter 4, or look at your outline if it's listed there for you. Read 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. It said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, reserved in heaven for you, protected by the power of God through the faith and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly, what? Rejoice. Even though for now, for a little while, you have been distressed by various trials. Psalm 51, I said it already, restore to me the joy of your salvation sustain me with a willing spirit psalm 95 verse 1 oh come let us sing for joy in the lord let us shout joyfully to the rock of my what salvation salvation and joy are linked 
If you remember you're saved, there's going to be joy. You've got to recall that. How can you not rejoice in a salvation you didn't deserve and you didn't earn? I mean, the ultimate gift. How can you not rejoice in being freely delivered from all of God's just wrath for all of your sin? Again, one more time, any time you're not in hell is a pretty good day. So therefore, you need to be understanding and remembering about salvation, what God has done for you, and cultivating joy in your own heart by giving you the most lavish gift, and of course, above all of that, not just salvation, but Christ Himself. You have Christ, which then points to the next cultivator of joy, and that would be God's character. God's character. Not just God's salvation, but secondly, God's character. Just consider two of God's attributes which will cultivate joy. Now, you can go through every attribute of God and begin to cultivate joy in your reflection of the fact of what, who He is. But let's just look at two, okay? Can we look at two for a second that, that address sometimes where we're at? And the first, of course, is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. The total control of everything in your life. Every detail. Psalm 115, verse 3. You might want to memorize it. You might want to know it. You might want to treasure it. But it says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Can I hear an amen to that? Sovereignty of God means this. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, and always as He pleases. And everything He does is for His glory and for your good. Isn't that great? That's the sovereign God. And it says in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other my purposes will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's kind of a, a Southern California, we'd say, God does what He wants, and He accomplishes all He wants. God created the entire universe. He holds it all together in the hollow of His hand. God is sovereign over the galaxy, but what about the details of my life? What about the specific details? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Some of you in the room, that's not a big job. You know? On some heads, it's a lot easier to count. God doesn't merely concern Himself with generalities. That's one of the things that the deist wants to say. God's removed from us. He's distant from us. But the Bible keeps telling you, no, 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 no. He knows the sand of the seashore. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows when a sparrow hops. Oh my goodness. He knows details. Details. He controls the cells in your bodies. The flu virus all the way to the cancer cell. He controls the car that swerves into your lane. He controls the weather and every natural occurrence from earthquakes to hurricanes to volcanoes. My kids live in Hawaii. They're far removed from the volcano. They live in Oahu, the Big Island. You've gotten all the news media on the Big Island? Okay, but I have... A couple in our church whose parents live on the Big Island, and they've been videotaping us, their property. And about a week and a half ago, out of nowhere, their property, beautiful piece of property, had giant cracks in it that just appeared that went 30 feet down. About five days later, steam was coming out of those cracks, and five days later, their property was gone. God's in control. Okay, you're not in control. That's why I love volcanoes. I love earthquakes. They're a wonderful, humbling reminder that you are not in charge. Right? Okay? And that's also other circumstances. God's in control of every person and place in our lives. If it weren't for His sovereignty, our trials would hold us hostage. But He's in charge. Now, back in 1981, a long time ago, a widely acclaimed bestseller swept uh, the U.S., and it was uh, written by a rabbi named Howard Kirshner, and the book was entitled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, which is a horrible title. Okay, it's a horrible title. And Rabbi Kirshner came to this conclusion as he related to the story of Job, the author of the book of Job. He said was forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good. That's how he summarized it. And his conclusion is this. He states... God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes even he, God, can't bring that about. Oh. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. End quote. Oh, that is a lie right out of the pit of hell. 
Men and women, if God can't control the workings of his creation, and if he doesn't control both the good and the bad that enters our lives, then he cannot save you because you're bad. He can't save you because you're sinful to the core, right? If he's not in control of the bad, then we're in trouble because we're the bad. Rabbi Kirshner and millions of other people who believe this error, the deist error, will never be able to trust God because their view is so wrong. So let me give you a second hook on which to hang your rejoicing. Not only is God in control, but God is, ready, second attribute, good. God is good. The sovereignty of God would be frightening if it weren't for God being good. You would have a hard time trusting a mean-spirited God, would you not? You'd be like a frightened little child sitting at the dinner table with an angry, unpredictable father who loved to watch his kids squirm. But God is good. He's not just sovereign in control. And so the Bible affirms the sovereign God is also a good God. Psalm 38, verse 8, 34, verse 8, excuse me. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Goodness is just one of God's numerous attributes. Our God is good, sovereign yet good. So we can rejoice because everything he intends in his sovereignty is good for our good and his glory, right? And that, sometimes that means pain and sometimes it means difficulty, but there are no accidents with a sovereign God. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes how many things? All things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So, why then should we rejoice, or where should we rejoice? Number two in your outline, the place of rejoicing, and that is verse 4, rejoice in the, what? In the Lord. Someone might ask, how can you tell somebody in the middle of an awful trial and tell them to rejoice? The answer is because Paul's commanding us, rejoice in the Lord. He didn't say rejoice in your circumstances, rejoice in difficult people, rejoice in your wife, rejoice in your husband. He commands you to rejoice in an unchanging, eternal, sovereign, and good God who is in control of his universe. And because your rejoicing is in the Lord, this could be a present and continual reality of every believer. So the Philippians, to be in the Lord, it's all throughout the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 14, 219, 224, 229, 3141, 42, 44, 410. Rejoice in, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, and hoping in the Lord. We're to be trusting in the Lord. We're to receive someone in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Live harmony in the Lord. More rejoicing in the Lord. It means being a Christian being immersed in Christ, being intimate with Him specifically. Sometimes we can go through the motions of knowing about Christ, but not actually being intimate with Him. And He's wanting to us to be intimate and immersed in Christ. Being in the Lord means you are a Christian, and you should be then experiencing Him. Now here's the beware. What do you mean beware? Don't start telling the parent with a wayward child, or the woman with cancer, or the man who lost his job, rejoice in the Lord! Have somebody done that to you? No, just rejoice, you know, you're just there laying down, you've been wiped out by, you know, the uh, run over by the car of circumstances, and somebody's going, rejoice, Christian, rejoice. Now, this is what you want to do. You don't want to do that. You don't want them to behave externally fake, right, when it's not from their heart, correct? Yes? So what do you do? You encourage their heart. You remind them of who God is and their salvation and that they have Christ, and that He is a gracious God who's in control, who loves them, who's good, and involved in every detail of their difficult trial. Gently remind them of the joy they have in the Lord, and then they will rejoice. You start with the internal joy, and then they'll rejoice. You know what I mean? Don't tell them to do the external. Remind them of who they are in Christ, and who they have with Christ, and then let the joy come from their heart. Does that make sense? The expression of it. So, we'll then... Uh, that's the pattern. That's the place. What's the priority of rejoicing? What's the priority? Well, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, what? Rejoice. So, rejoice in the Lord now and in the future. Now, why does he use rejoice twice? I'm going to tell you this twice because sometimes it takes two times to get it down, right? The first rejoice is rejoice now. The second rejoice is whatever happens in the future, rejoice. That's why he puts it in there. He says it twice, not so you wouldn't get it, but he says, rejoice with everything now, and no matter what comes in the future, rejoice. 
That's what he's telling you in the tenses and in the original language. He's reaffirming that process. And he knew that if he gave the Philippians, looking up at the Lord, they'd rejoice. And, and if you're in touch with the joy of your salvation from the Lord, you'll be less prone to be offended by others and the senselessness of sometimes brothers and sisters. And you'll be, when you're overwhelmed by the fruit of the Spirit, which includes joy, then you will be less overwhelmed by the foolishness of people around you and saints and circumstances, right? The Christian who is filled, verses 2 and 3, with the supernatural abounding joy from his father will not find fault with his church family in verses 2 and 3 like Judea and Syntyche or fear from Rome or the failure and the, the error of false doctrine. To stand firm and mature in Christ, you're to be continually rejoicing. Let your supernatural internal abounding joy out. But how often do we let it out? Well, Paul says what? How often? Always, always, rejoice in the Lord always, rejoice during trial and grief and sorrow and attack and loss, and as well as blessing and celebration, rejoice during times of trial, James 1 chapter 2, chapter 1 verse 2 says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, right? Really? Think about it. Think about what Paul is saying here. You forgot where he was, didn't you? He's under house arrest. He's been jailed. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by a snake. (laughs) He's awaiting trial. Do you realize this aggressive, church-planting apostle of Jesus Christ, you don't realize it, at this point, he's been out of the active ministry for almost five years. And yet he says to Christians in Philippi, what? Rejoice. Rejoice. God's in control. That's amazing. He's probably reaching the Praetorian. And do you know who the Praetorian are? You probably don't. The Praetorian are Caesar's guard. But they're more than Caesar's guard. You know who they are in the future? They're the future senators of Rome. All the political leadership is going to come out of the Praetorian. All of them. It's just like what we used to be in American military. You know, our generals used to be our, become our president. Right? It's the same thing in Rome. They would be the leadership. So he's now got an opportunity. It even says in, in, in Philippi that he's actually made inroads into Caesar's household. And there's rumors that the wife of Nero actually became a believer. And we don't know that for a fact, but it seems that way. And Nero actually killed her for her faith. Amazing things that he had this influence. He was just rejoicing. He knew his circumstances. He was there by divine assignment. Was he not? Sure he was. And he wrote those four great letters, one of them we're reading right here. This is what Paul is rejoicing over. So true joy glows in the dark, you know, so you don't miss it. He tells this and gives this command in verse 4, again, I will say, what? Rejoice. All the time. Under every circumstance. He repeats the command and makes it emphatic. He knew when people heard Paul is commanding an attitude of joy in the midst of trials, they're going, what? How can I be joyful? You're kidding me? And so he commands it with rejoice, rejoice. In America, we have a commercial on TV. It's for Little Caesar's Pizza, and it's pizza, pizza. All right? That's not what Paul's doing here. Rejoice, rejoice. He's not just repeating himself. He's saying rejoice now and rejoice in anything that comes to you in the future. He's making sure you understand Stand firm, rejoice, no matter what happens in the future, no matter what happens right now. Stand firm by manifesting your joy in Christ. Now this joy is to be unique among us, and it's to be seen and shown so it can impact the world. This is a characteristic. Uh, the, the Philippians are experiencing pressure within, pressure without, and yet he wants them to manifest joy. And to stand firm, people should see that you're rejoicing, and they also should see an attitude that comes from you that is really unique. And that's verse 5. Okay? So we're looking at verse 5 now. You should react differently than everybody else. So instead of complaining, you should give thanks. Instead of worrying, you should be expressing confidence. Instead of blaming others, you should be trusting God at work providentially. There's that joyful in your heart that's expressed by rejoicing. And that they, not only do you know God has complete control, but He's good, He's wise, He loves them more than anything. So they stand firm and express their inner joy. And if that's not crazy enough, Paul takes it a step further. 
So this is one of the most radical expressions that are found in this passage. And I want you to get it, verse 5, because it looks simple. You've read it probably a hundred times, but you need to understand it is radical when you express it. I don't want to show it to you. Okay, it says in verse 5, what's it say? It says, let your gentle spirit be known to how many men? All men, all men, the Lord is near. Let your gentle spirit. Now, before you say, well, I, I, I don't get that. I'm glad you don't get it because almost every translation of the Bible has a really hard time with this phrase. This is one of those passages that is one of the most difficult to translate because, again, when you go from language to language, there's always a difficulty with translation, correct? Some, it's a direct translation. It's really easy. Others, it's like, how do we communicate this in this other language? Well, Greek to English in this phrase is really rough. And so let me tell you all the different translations, okay? New American Standard, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The ESV, let your reasonableness, let your reasonableness, not gentle spirit, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. New King James Version, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Uh, the, another version, let your moderation be known to all men. The great reformer Tyndale says, let your softness be known to all men. Now, after studying the Greek text, 30 commentators, I discovered four major principles in this particular verse and came up with an outline to help you embrace what Paul's saying here. So I want you to understand, it was one of my favorite outlines. Number one, the meaning to be sown. Number two, the message to be known. The masses to be shown. And number four, the motive to be owned. Don't you love that? Okay, I do. All right, so understand, look at verse five. The meaning to be sown is your gentle spirit. Look at verse 5. Number 2, the message to be known, let your gentle spirit be known. Number 3, the masses to be shown, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the masses to be shown. And number 4, the motive to be owned, the Lord is near. So what is the meaning to be sown? What's he saying here? Let your gentle spirit, the Greek word is epiakes, epiakes, gentle spirit, that's epiakes, and it's difficult to translate. It's outrageous how many different commentators look at it differently. In spite of the difficulty of translation in English, it's, it's really deep. It commands every believer to pursue a unique opportunity. You have in your hand a powerful opportunity, and I want you to buy it up. I want you to grab a hold of it because it's right here. It's practical theology. It's right out of the text. Students, this will shock your fellow students. Adults, this will blow them away at work. Spouses towards each other, Christian in ministry and community, especially surprise those who are lost in need of salvation with this concept. This is powerful stuff. Epia case. It's higher, richer, fuller, more profound meaning than any single English word can convey. It cannot be fully translated in any one word, even though we try. Now, here are the different ways guys have tried to translate it with one or two words. They've said what gentle spirit means is mercy or contentment or gentleness or generosity or goodwill towards others, patience, forbearance, sweet reasonableness, friendliness, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, to name a few. Biblical scholars wrestle with Paul's intended meaning here, but understand so that they develop descriptive phrases. Here are the phrases they came up with. I haven't told you the right one yet. Okay, so hang in there. A charity towards weakness of others. Gentleness means a charity towards the weakness of others. Some have said, someone who submits to injustice or mistreatment. That's close. A person who does not retaliate with hatred or bitterness. That's also a part of it. A unique individual who does not demand his rights is gentleness. Uh, that's close. Enduring mistreatment without bitterness or vengeance. That's close. Being satisfied with less than what is due. Let that all be known to man. Now understand, in Philippi they're being persecuted outside They've got internal conflict. So they've got this stress going on, and they have an opportunity to put something on display that he wants all men to see. You say, what is it? What is it? Well, the Greeks themselves explain this Greek word as a gentle spirit, epiakes, as a justice and something better than justice. What? What is that? Those Greeks, they're funny. Bible writers use this word of verse 5 to describe a situation when strict justice actually seems unjust or harsh. Now, what do they mean? Let me illustrate this. Imagine a teacher. He's got two students. 
that he's really focusing on, and he's, and he's grading a test, the same test that they both took. One student got an 85%, and he's working really hard to actually lower that grade to an 80 or maybe a 79. And the reason is because this student comes from a great home, perfect environment, every advantage, and the errors on the test are simply that he just was lazy. He didn't care. So he's, he's like, man, you didn't try very hard. I want to knock you down, right? That there's another student in his class, and to understand epiakia or epiakase, the same teacher, he grades the same test, but this test is like 65%. And he wants to make it to 70 to 71, and he wants to upgrade it. Here's why. Because this student comes from a poor home, uncaring mother with no place to study, battling with constant sickness because he's caring for his eight younger siblings, and he has tried harder than any other student to learn and grapple with this material. So he wants to move him up. Because justice doesn't seem just right. He wants to help him. Does that make sense? That's a little bit of what is being reflected here. Something better than justice. Paul is saying in verse 5, when he says stand firm, he wants them to stand firm by letting your gentle spirit show, verse 5. This is an untamed humility. So I want you to write this down. Write it down. What he's saying here in verse 5, this is your powerful tool. It is the shocking graciousness of untamed humility. The shocking graciousness of untamed humility. One more time. The shocking graciousness of untamed humility. That's what gentle spirit means. Now, mankind abused and maligned our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he deserved how much of it? None of it. He's perfect. Peter then tells us how Jesus responded in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and following. Listen to what the Lord endured. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who then was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's Epia case. A gracious, giving, patient humbleness. It's the shocking graciousness of untamed humility. The word is an intense combination of humility, graciousness, selflessness, and mission. All of those. Humility, graciousness, selflessness, and mission, which will help you live a stable life in spite of unjust circumstances and become influential for Christ in the worst situations. A shocking graciousness. Now, don't misunderstand. He is not talking about accepting errant doctrine. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about compromising the truth of God's Word. He's not talking about compromising biblical moral behavior. He's not talking about approving homosexuality, being tolerant of fornication, confusing the sexes. He's not talking about embracing pride. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be what? Transformed. So Paul's encouraging Christ followers, not about doctrine, but to bend in their attitudes towards others. To not make issues, to, to not be offended, to not embrace the role of a victim. The overall is to avoid having an inflexible personality. Let me say that one more time. Overall, it's to avoid having an inflexible personality. I'm not going to point you out because I don't know who you are, but you're here. You're to listen, to care, to be patient with others, even tolerate immaturity and overlook weakness. Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, but encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Dads, this quality is what God meant when he told dads not to provoke their children. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Children often rebel against their parents, and their parents' faith. And often it's because fathers 
often have been harsh or unbending, and they provoke their children. And though we need to uphold truth, we must, we do so and live by grace. We're grace and truth, just like the Lord Jesus was full of grace and truth in John chapter 1. And though we take sin seriously, we also thank God for His forgivenesses, and there must be consequences, but also a gracious humility expressed in our parental responsibilities. Are you getting it? Epia case. I'll never forget. Here's an example of it. I was in trouble with the police at age 16. Now, I wasn't really a radical kid, but when I got my license, I thought that was my opportunity to race around the neighborhood and chase my friends in their cars, okay? And so I did that at age 16, but I forgot my license at home, and I was pulled over by police, and I was in trouble, big trouble. And the police officer decided to have me drive home, but they called my home, and my dad figured that I'd gone to the police station. And so I got home before my dad got back from the police station. Can you imagine how I felt? I'm 16. My dad's going to kill me, okay? And I'm sitting there, and I am waiting for him to show up because I know I'm not going to go upstairs. I'm going to wait for him to come. He comes in the door, and he's going, ah! He's laughing. And I'm like, what's going on? He's going, I thought you were at the police station. Oh, man, this is awesome. And he's all thrilled. And he, I thought they arrested you. <laughs> and I go, ha, 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 ha. I don't know what's happening here. He joked about my car compromise because he already knew that I was massively repentant, that I, I knew that I was foolish, that I'd blown it tremendously and felt stupid. And his response shocked me. Because it wasn't mean and ungracious. It was more of, man, didn't you learn a great lesson? He was so excited that I had learned early on as a 16-year-old, just got my license, driving a car, you know, which is a scary thing for most adults. And, and basically, he was so excited because he goes, he knew I was going to drive better after that. He just knew because he knew that it was a, a very humbling thing. And what he basically did, he, he let his gentle spirit this, this untamed humility in the midst of a crisis or a trial shine. As Paul writes these very words, he writes verse 5, he's at this moment chained to a soldier under house arrest. This is not always a civilized and just situation. I imagine, this is all imagining, a praetorian being weary of Paul. Can you imagine having to be chained up to Paul? Can you imagine that? I mean, you're hearing this gospel, Jesus, da, da, and some guys are just not going to have it, Right? And I can imagine that there were guys that yanked on the chain a little harder, made it really uncomfortable, maybe even hit him with the chain. And I can imagine Paul responding to that same praetorian that very day, saying, how is your younger son? I, I heard you talking to Flavius, and I understand that your boy's been sick, and I, I want you to know I've been praying for him every day since I heard that. Shocking, humble spirit. You say, Chris, that's all speculation. You're right. You say, Paul would never do that. Well, actually, he already did. He already did in Philippi. Do you remember what happened in Philippi? He'd been wrongfully accused. He'd been, as a Roman citizen, publicly beaten. He'd been jailed. And then to make it even more unjust, he was actually put in stocks, which you never would do to a Roman citizen. So what did Paul and Titus decide to do? You know, to claim their rights? To scream injustice? No, what do they do? They sing praise to God. And then when they have the opportunity to get out with an earthquake, they stay put, which brings the jailer, what? To saving faith in Christ. The shocking graciousness of untamed humility. He already put that on display. Listen, you, every time you're in a crisis, every time you're in a trial, any time even in the world setting, at work or at school, when things go south, you now have this incredible weapon. And the weapon is, is to demonstrate the shocking graciousness of untamed humility. You say, what do you mean? Okay, I have two grandchildren that live in Hawaii. Someone has to fly there and visit them, okay? So I go and see my kids. And sometimes... Uh, you know, my wife is over there caring for them or, you know, relieving them so they can accomplish some things. And I'm trying to join them for just a little bit so that I don't have always the same window of opportunity that she does. So I'm going over there for a four-day trip, and I happened to get a coupon that I had to use in Hawaiian Airlines, even though I don't like them. And they really messed up. 
They, we all got on the plane, and they had a part that wasn't functioning. They knew it wasn't functioning, and they knew that if they took off and it continued to not function, they'd have to fly around for three hours and come right back, which is exactly what happened. Now, when that happens in the secular world, people are not happy. Have you noticed that? Especially when they're on their vacation. And I'm talking, I haven't seen people this mad in a long time. We're talking frothing at the mouth, gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's a little demonstration of hell. I mean, they're just coming up to the thing. They're, you know, and these ladies are like, okay, we're going to try to help you get on the flight for tomorrow. And, and, you know, and they're just doing this whole thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I happen to be studying Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 right then. And I'm thinking, Lord, you're slapping me here. This is my opportunity to put untamed graciousness and humility on display. I walked into those ladies and I go, first thing, I'm praying for you guys. I love you guys. And I know you've just experienced some horrific, horrific things. I mean, it, we're talking 400 people are waiting to gnash their teeth at them. And I'm just, I, I love you guys. I'm praying for you. I, I care about you. And they're, they're like this. They can't believe it. And I said, you know, I, I mean, I just, I'm just trying to let you know that, you know, the Lord's in charge and I'm okay with that. And I'm just telling them what I, you know, just studied here. And they just are blown away. And then I show up the next day for the next flight because everybody's still there and they're still, you know, that going on. They want to get on that plane. And I go, I'm still praying for you. And I still care. And I just, you know, want you to know that I'm a, a pastor and I'm sharing, I'm trying to share Christ with them and make sure it's really clear. <laughs> and this was not the intended outcome, but the, 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 uh, the stewardess who's in charge of the whole thing, she goes, you get on the plane first, okay? <laughs> just go on. I want you on the plane. <laughs> You're praying for us. You could not have believed what an incredible opportunity that was to just tell them about Christ. They wanted to hear about Christ because they saw him demonstrated in untamed humility. It was just a choice. Was, I'm not any great saint. I'm just telling you, it was a choice that you made in a crisis. You have the opportunity to put Christ on display. So when people treat you unjustly, you can respond with this untamed humility, and it gives you a platform in which to talk about Christ. And Paul says right here, I want this message to be what? Known. Look what he says. Let your gentle spirit be what? Known. And that word known there, that verb, that's the point of the passage. This is the emphasis. I want the main verb here is let it be known. Why do you glorify God and show off his attributes with this shocking humility? It's because it's one of the qualities of Christ. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And what is Matthew eleven twenty nine? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls christ was humble and as we express that humility of christ we then put him on display and have a platform in which to tell them about the gospel let the word world see untamed gracious humility when you're sick when you're under trial when you're treated unjustly show him off some of you've been in the hospital and you know exactly how this works out because the nurses are coming into your room and when you show untamed, gracious humility, you're basically expressing the opposite of what they normally see. And so you're more concerned about them, and they're going, why are you concerned about us? Because of Christ. That's why. Because in, in an opportunity to look ingrown eyeballs, you're now looking at them, and they're going, I don't get this. That's what the Lord has called us to. Let it be known. Not a suggestion. It's a command. Let it be known. You're commanded to do this. And it's directed at your everyday life. This week at school, at a restaurant, uh, the command tells you wherever you are, whatever the Lord wills, make it known. And, and <laughs> God's word is exact. This command points to a reality. The verb of make it known, this is so cool, is passive. You say, Chris, why are you excited about that? Because it's telling you when God creates the opportunity, let it be known. You don't create the opportunities. You're not to create the unjust situation. You're not to be the one that exacerbates the situation. You're to be the one, when he does do that, you enter in with untamed humility. And you put him on display. In other words, when God opens the door, you step through it with untamed, gracious humility. 
That's what he wants. That's what Paul's saying here, let your gentle spirit. In fact, who should it be known to? Well, number three, the masses to be shown, let it be known to all men. This quality is not merely for believers, but unbelievers, especially unbelievers. That's why he says all men. Say it with me. Who's supposed to hear it? All men. All women as well. The verb be known is third person plural, which means everyone. And so he makes it clear that our gracious humility should be demonstrated both inside and outside the church. Not just those we love, not just those whom we respect, but everyone, including strangers, crazy drivers, contentious people who cut in lines, IRS agents, that's for Americans, cranky store cashiers, bossy bosses, whiny children, and spouses who come home riding on a broomstick. Okay, all of that. All of that. Doesn't matter. Untamed humility. <laughs> Sorry. Humility. You know, when you're going, where's my Dorothy and who is this wicked witch of the... Who is this? I don't... You can't do it. Now, some of you here today go, I, I want some deeper theology. This is deep theology. This is practical theology. And some of us sometimes are drawn to theological terms and proudness with the ignorance of actually living a holy life. This is part of living a holy life. Living the expression of Christ in the world. This is the triune God working through you, and you can't do this. Let me make it really clear. Only God can glorify God. Only Christ can live the Christian life. Only the Spirit of God can energize you to accomplish this. this is ne- you can't do this in the flesh. You have to be in the Spirit, right? Listen, when you say only God can glorify God, what do I mean? God through you. God himself through you. Anytime it's you, it's going to burn. Any times it's God, it brings him glory, right? And you've been born again and dwelt with God's spirit. You've been given a new nature. Your tank is already full. You're complete in Christ. You've been given every spiritual blessing. This is Colossians 1.28. It's Ephesians 1.3. God provided you with everything for life and godliness. Second Peter 1.3. His love has been shed abroad in your heart. His peace has been given to you. You're no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. And as you depend on the Holy Spirit and obedience to the word of God, you have the ability to show off Christ in untamed humility, especially when God opens the door of injustice, harshness, persecution, and intense trial. You say, how do I do that? That's very simple. You walk through life with your hand up like this. Remember your little kids when they were learning to walk? Remember that? Or your grandkids? Are you with me on this? When they couldn't walk, what'd they do? They automatically just kind of like this. And you grab their hand and you hold them as they walk. Now, how does that work? When you're dependent upon the Spirit of God, you're saying, Lord, I can't do this. I need to yield to you. It's a passive verb. It's a command. When it says, be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, you've got to be depending on Him, saturating God's Word. You're relying on Him, and then you exercise your will to step out in obedience. But always in reliance. It's not do, 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 do. It's dependent obedience. Dependent obedience. The moment you let go of His hand, you're going to crash or fall or do it in your own strength and it's not going to be rewardable. You're relying, but you're exercising your will to depend. And you can't do this unless you're relying. And sometimes it's the circumstances that actually, for me, wake me up to that reality. It's at that moment. A crisis has occurred. I'm like, oh, I've got to be filled with the Spirit. I, gotta, I, I, I have an opportunity now to put Him on display. And so, you know, that, that reminder to be, make sure that I'm dependent at that moment. Are you with me on this? This is how it works out. That's sanctification. So, amazingly, even when it's harsh, it's persecuted, it's intense trial, you can put Him on display and show this humility, even with Eudicae and Syntyche, Eudia and Syntyche, who are wrecking the church. You show humility. Well, number four, the motive to be owned. Why should I do this? Well, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now, I can't solve this for you. Massive debate. Is he talking about time or space here? The Lord is near. Time or space. There, there isn't an answer to this. So if it's time, then what he has in mind is the rapture is in Paul's mind. It's going to happen quickly. You're a citizen of heaven in 320. You're waiting for a savior. This life is a breath. All you have to do is breathe, see a vapor. You know how life is. It's just a blip on the radar. And your life as a Christian, no matter how bad is on earth, it will be glorious, perfect when Christ returns. So, you know, use the opportunities and the difficulties of life to put them on display. 
Or, if he's not talking about time, he's talking about space, that God is near. And we know he is near, correct? He's omniscient and omnipresent. He knows all, and he is present, fully present, wherever he's at. And this could be the immediate context when God is present in the midst of his people, when they're experiencing injustice and persecution. So aren't you glad the Lord is near? You know, to his people, and here's their cries. Psalm 119, 151, you are near, O Lord. And in the midst of the storm, you can be calm. You don't have to panic. You, you, in the midst of injustice, you can love others. You can put this untamed humility on display. And, and when people hate you, when they hurt you, because the Lord is near, Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we are those who manifest his joy, and then we, then with that joy, rejoice. And in rejoicing, we also look for opportunities to put the gospel on display when we see injustice or crisis, sometimes falling on us, sometimes falling on others, so that we might show this gracious, untamed humility for an, a platform to all men so they might see Christ. That's how you stand firm. See, if you're, if you're not there... You know, we, we kind of react to life, don't we? When a trial hits us, okay, I'm geared up. And what Paul is saying, look, to stand firm, you look at a crisis or a trial, you go, all right, I'm on. You know, I'm on. I got, I got a job to do. And the job is to put Christ on display in such a way that people go, whoa, wow, that's different. Not seen that very often. What's that all about? And Christ can be made known. Does that make sense? Standing firm, you have a mission to put him on display in the worst of circumstances. The Philippians are all worried, trials are coming, Nero's coming, it's going to get worse, we're going to get hit. And he's going, no, you've got a job to do. When it gets really bad, you put him on display. And you know the stories, right? You know, the, the Chinese soldiers that kicked open the door in the house church and said, okay, if you're not prepared to die for your faith, then get out of the room. Okay, because we're going to kill everybody that's a Christian here. And all the interlopers and, you know, kind of marginal folks left the room. They closed the door and the soldiers put their guns down and said, now you're the ones we want to talk to. Can we know about Christ? Will you tell us? Because they knew they were the ones willing to give their life. Does that make sense? You can enter into a situation in similar circumstances by showing that untamed graciousness of humility put on display it's a perfect platform to, to display our lord and that's why we stand firm or if you're older sit firm okay let's pray heavenly father thank you for your word thank you for this passage thank you for the challenge to live in this world not on the defense but on the offense to put you on display, to, to have the, not only the joy in our heart from salvation and your great character, but also to demonstrate it by rejoicing. And then to put you on display in the world with expressions of untamed humility and putting your gospel out so people could see what you do and how you transform lives. We pray that you might be honored by our response, by what we know and by what we do with what we know. And we'll give you all the glory in advance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.